Welcome to What a Word is Worth, a space for creative minds to speak about viable ways to heal the world through writing and other inventive mediums. This is your host, Marianela Medrano. I am the founder of Palabra Training Center, where words are giving us medicine. Today, my guest is Francisco Paco Palmieri, who is a recent senior fellow and an undergraduate capstone faculty member at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University in New Haven. He served as the acting assistant secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs for the U.S. Department of State from January 2017 to October 2018, where he led the State Department's efforts to advance U.S. foreign policy goals in the region. He managed the successful 2018 Summit of the Americas in Peru, U.S. engagement with the Lima Group unifying 15 Western Hemisphere democracies in a multilateral diplomatic response to the crisis in Venezuela, the reorientation of U.S. foreign assistance in support of the Colombia peace process, the formulation and adaptation of a new comprehensive U.S. political and economical Caribbean 2020 strategy for the Caribbean. The launch of the renegotiation of the 50-year-old Columbia River treated with Canada and the multi-agency response to the ongoing migration challenges emanating from Central America. Francisco has also been responsible for the daily management of the Bureau's 53 overseas U.S. diplomatic missions, that is 12,000 employees, and implementation of the hemisphere's 1.58 billion foreign assistance and 290 million operating budgets. Palmieri served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary from January 2016 to January 2017, and as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central America and the Caribbean from January 2014 to January 2016. In this role, he was the principal U.S. negotiator on the Alliance for Prosperity Plan adopted by El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Mr. Palmieri also served as the director of the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs Offices of Policy Planning and Coordination in 2011-2012. He also served as Deputy Executive Secretary in the Department of State's Executive Secretariat, where he managed the flow of information to Secretaries Kerry and Clinton and coordinated their 
overseas travels. Um, he has led also the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Enforcement's Latin America and Caribbean Programs Office. And he was also in Baghdad, uh, posted there, Iraq. He managed um, a 1 billion program with over 1,000 employees in that area and serve as director of the Near East and South and Central Asia office in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. And there is so much more I can say about Francisco Palmieri, but I'm going to stop there and um, so we can have some time to uh, entertain some questions. What a pleasure to have you here, Paco. It's really great to, to be here to chat with you, uh, Marianela. Uh, yes. You know, um, I, I really do think, uh, as you say, uh, uh, words, words matter. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you have, you have embraced that, so that's why, um, you know, as I go through the list of possible uh, interviewees, I'm always looking for people who have used words to advance, to, to create a better world, and your name, of course, was one. So tell us about your first encounter your first moment of awareness of the power of language to create transformation. Yeah, you know, there, the, it, it, it's really started uh, at a, a very young age uh, for me, but it's also been something that's been a critical part of my professional uh, experience, development and practice. But, uh, you know, just in our household, um, I think it was really significant that um, my mother was a Spanish speaker uh, and the rest of us in the house were not. Uh, you know, this is the 1960s. I'm a young growing uh, a child in the United States of America where assimilation was the rule of the day. But um, there was a constant exposure to language, uh, Spanish, English, Italian on my father's side. Uh, and it was really clear to me at a young age that you had to listen in order to understand. And I, I think um for me as a diplomat that has been uh one of the most transformational elements of how I, of how and what i do and it starts with listening to what i'm hearing and um and that started because you know uh, when i was younger there were a lot of different languages being spoken around our household yeah, speaking of pluralism, right? <laughs> like you had it all. You had the Italian culture, you have the Colombian culture, and then you have the American culture with all the multiplicity. But, but you're saying though, can we go back to what you were saying, the force of assimilation 
um, how how was that for you and and your sense of of self to be um, kind of you were saying that you felt the push to assimilate, but at the same time you had all these. Um, this pluralism that that we are talking about. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I, I I think the United States has come a long way mm -hmm. in in the last fifty years, but as a, a eight or nine or ten year old, um, there was this very strong sense that you know your mother's speaking Spanish, and no one understands that, mm -hmm. and this is the United States and people speak English. And it was a very strong uh, driving uh, element that we wanted to fit in. And for us, we internalized this. Fitting in meant speaking English and kind of pushing to the back uh, that um, cultural um, uh, connection uh, that language gives you to your uh, your uh, your family background, and now going back, what what do you see about this sense of self? Um, how is it different uh, between Spanish and English? Because you became bilingual. Eventually, you you found your way um, into embracing Spanish. And you have used Spanish, um, you know, as, as a key actually to negotiate and, and all those things. So eventually you, you, you embraced that. Um, what, what do you think though, is, uh, is there a difference between your sense of self in English and your sense of self in Espanol? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there definitely is a difference, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, uh, to use a word that has been uh, used, uh, uh, I, I am uh, un picaro in, in Spanish. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more mischievous, uh, as it would be. Uh, and I think that's because as I grew to embrace Spanish as a language and to see it as a advantage in my professional desires and goals. Um, uh, I also felt that I was learning it as an adult. I think hearing it all my life, I had the hardwiring neurologically to, to advance but I didn't have the, the academic study. And so often my Spanish is just kind of, you know, diving into the water, so to speak, and not so much worried about the precise um, intellectual reference or expressing myself at the, you know, postgraduate level that I've achieved uh, academically uh, in my life in Spanish. I, I think I'm much more willing to put myself out there and, um, and uh, you know, just uh, be more, more open, less uh, perhaps uh, guarded 
than I am in English, where particularly as an American diplomat, I weigh carefully uh, mm-hmm. every every word, every uh, intention, a nuance of my language. But when I'm in Spanish, I I, I think I just uh, um, embrace uh, 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 an openness. And I think it's the connection of the two that makes me uh, effective. And I'm wondering too, if for you also, the Spanish, um, you know, a language that you inherited from your mother um, is a little bit like the language of the heart as well. And, and I know your mother is, is a lover of words and books. And um, so maybe that, yeah, awesome. I, I think that's that's a a, a good observation. Mm-hmm. Is I, I do think the Spanish does come from the being, from mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. the core mm-hmm. of 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 um, maybe my soul and how I feel. Mm-hmm. Whereas in mm-hmm. English, I tend to be a bit more analytical right. and uh, um, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So you you began diving into um, you know learning Spanish as 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 a professional um, endeavor in college. Is that so? Tell us about what brought you into the study of political science and and um, international work and and. Uh, diplomacy yeah well i mean and it goes back to the whole u.s drive for assimilation and Mm. um and i think what i as i was coming of age in the late Mm. 1970s and and early 1980s the united states was beginning to change uh its attitude towards assimilation we were beginning to understand that there was a richness to the multicultural melting pot of the United States. And that by preserving elements of that in an increasingly globalizing world, it was a comparative advantage for the United States. And as I realized that I had the ability to access Spanish because of my mother and hearing it every day of my life, even though I didn't speak it, I saw it as a way to build better connections and um, um, uh, ability to communicate more effectively and persuasively uh, uh, in in the world, not just in my profession, and uh, that it would open uh, greater doors. And I think as the United States moved into a long period of heightened um, immigration, legal immigration uh, from the United, uh, from the Western hemisphere. Uh, There were more and more Spanish speakers uh, uh, in the United States engaging. Mm -hmm. And we saw that as a enormous opportunity for uh, both people coming to the United States and for Americans going to the region and for building partnerships uh, throughout the hemisphere. 
When when did you realize though that you wanted to go into political science and and diplomacy? I I, I think um, it, truthfully it was from the youngest uh, uh, age. Uh, I my first recollection of politics is uh, being uh, kind of absorbed by the 1968 presidential election in the United States. And that was a very competitive election between Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon. But it also came during a, a period of enormous upheaval and violence. Robert Kennedy had been assassinated that spring, that summer, Martin Luther King had been assassinated two or three months before that. And those were the first formative events that I have uh, memory of and politics and understanding that politics um, uh, was your opportunity to make an impact in your community, to help uh, your community. I think it started there and by the time I, you know, was student council president and in high school, and I got to college, I knew that I wanted to both pursue the study of political science and international relations. And uh, I didn't know if I would be maybe a lawyer or, uh, or involved in political life uh, or a diplomat, but I knew that I was going to be engaged in, in, in the public sphere. Uh, and in public affairs. And, um, and so I, I, I think it's really, it, it's innately uh, kind of grown. And then both my mother and father were, you know, what we call today activists. Mm -hmm. uh, but then mm -hmm. they were just members, pillars uh, of their community. Uh, my mom helping the Hispanic community and my dad's passion for working with young uh, uh, young people and uh, helping uh, uh, build community. Uh, and uh, when others in his family were moving to the suburbs, my father was doubling down and moving back into the inner city and, and, and living there. And that's, you know, that's where we were raised. Yeah, I don't know if so that's yeah, so so your early childhood was framed by this um, election, and then the subsequent, you know, the Kennedy's assassination and all those things were kind of shaping your you ushering ushering you into the world, uh, bringing you into into the world with open eyes, and having then parents who were such advocates for human rights and, and, um, and, and activism. Uh, that makes sense that then by the time you, you chose to do something, you, you, you were influenced by that, you were shaped by that. Um, so as you look back into your career, what are your thoughts um, you know, about the power of language, the power of words, to heal, which is the premise of these podcasts, and also how words have perhaps heard intercultural negotiations. What are your thoughts about that? What are your recollections of being 
you know, in situations where you know that there's some healing is possible and there is some hurt in the negotiation. Is that? Yeah. I think, I think one of the most um, telling words that has um, changed um, how the United States approaches uh, Latin America and the Caribbean over my lifetime and in uh, in my professional work is there was still, you know, at the beginning of my career, uh, it was the end of the Cold War. There were civil wars in Central America. There was a frontline competition between the United States and the Soviet Union and communism and democracy. But one word that uh, consistently resonated in a negative way uh, was the uh, American uh, uh, mindset that Latin America and the Caribbean was our back, our backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this was a region that, you know, was in the back, was the backyard of the house. Uh, something that, you know, also conveyed a certain proprietorship of over and uh, certainly uh, a lack of, of, of respect. And, and I think what I have seen in my career is, you know, you will not find an American diplomat now, uh, career diplomat in particular, and any effective U.S. diplomat ever use the word backyard anywhere in this hemisphere. Because what we have come to realize and what we have come to see, and, and you and I both know there's a long history of other American behavior, interventionism uh, in the region that shapes how the region perceives the United States. And so any Western hemisphere da- diplomat from the United States is, is understands that this is not our backyard. This, this region is our most uh, valued and important partners. This hemisphere, we like to say, almost exclusively, is a democratic hemisphere. Uh, uh, in the last uh, 20 years since dem- democracy has really taken hold, yes, there are some internal conflicts in the region, but you don't have state-on-state violence in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I think the last time we had uh, an intervention in the United uh, in in the Hemisphere is when the United States went into Panama in 1989, Uh, and so this sense of moving away from this concept of uh, backyard meaning less than uh, and partnership uh, signifying uh, respect, I think is uh, an example of words that uh, we, uh, we are much more uh, in tune with now. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense because the concept of, yeah, that backyard concept is not only um, 
you know, minimizing, but it's overizing, right? It's, it's, it's the us versus them that that was in and and that then that they're that then the other is less than. Um, so by the time you went to work to to the the Caribbean, um, what you're saying is that some of the uh, do you think the history had begun to heal somehow as the United States um, changed their their position? Because uh, there, there was a lot of, I mean, the history of invasions. I, I, I can say for the Dominican Republic, right, where I am from and, and, and how the history of U.S. invasion um, was a wound that um, was bleeding for for way into you know the times when I was a teenager and and there were still manifestations on the streets about American intervention. Um, but you're saying that as the United States began to see that otherizing was not the way to go and neither was minimizing. By the time you got there, what did you find then? Well, you know, my career began in the mid-1980s. And mm -hmm. the, the truth of the matter is um, the process of, of healing uh, some of the legacy issues of how the United States intervened is still ongoing. But mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think the recognition that the words we use the language we used in talking uh, to people, both governments and general publics in, in, in the hemisphere is really important. And that doesn't mean that um, there isn't still ongoing conflict. We have very conflictual uh, and different views of the world than uh, Cuba and Venezuela, and now Nicaragua. But I do think it's been a process of the United States um, using language that uh, is less paternalistic, right, in our backyard, mm -hmm. and uh, more respectful of the importance of uh, partnership uh, and mutual, mutual benefit. Uh, it doesn't mean that the United States is still uh, does every is doing everything right even today. But that process, I think, began part of it. Um, and this is a very controversial element was, you know, the Panama Canal Treaty decision that President Carter made, uh, turning over the canal uh, back to the Panamanians. It was very controversial in the United States. It sent a huge signal to the hemisphere as well. Uh, and the other thing is, I think, for the most part, the United States uh, has tried to use its foreign assistance now to uh, promote development and democracy. And as the region itself has embraced democracy, moved away from uh, dictators and authoritarian governments, uh, I think we've also found greater common ground.
but you know, it's still, it's still an ongoing process. You don't I mean, heal those, as you said, yeah. those wounds are still bleeding for some yeah. people and they, and they, they don't heal from night to day or from the use of one word or another. It's got to be a constantly. It's uh, arduous work is because of, of intergenerational trauma that gets, you know, that gets passed on and it doesn't, it takes generations and generations to do the healing. And um, I, I mean, I grew up with this very conscious awareness of repudiating imperialism. Um, I, if you had told me when I was 16 that I was gonna be living in the United States, I will have laughed and said, no, I don't live in the, uh, with the uh, imperialism, I'm not going there. So um, it, it, it has, it's, a, it's an ongoing, ongoing process as you are saying. When you were posted, uh, you went to the uh, Dominican Republic specifically um, in the late 80s. So what was your experience there of the healing and also the residues of the hurt? Can you think of- Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, 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 you know, I, I do think one of the, uh, the changes in the mid-80s was Dominican migration to the United States was beginning to accelerate. Um, and I remember I was a visa consul and uh, we were adjudicating immigrant visas, not just uh, tourist visas to visit. And you could see these pockets of areas around the United States, you know, Lawrence, uh, Massachusetts, uh, uh, you know, Jackson Heights uh, in the Queen, in Queens, uh, you know, the, uh, the Upper West Side of the Bronx. Uh, um, there, was, there were pockets even then in uh, uh, the Washington DC area. And of course, in, in, in Miami and in, in Orlando. And the, the, the way migration works is you have path setters, you have path uh, finders who get there. And the reason, you know, immigration tends to be concentrated from a community to a specific community is because of that social network, that ability to navigate the new world is such a critical uh, element for an arriving immigrant. And then they reach back and they bring people to where they are because they've begun to create uh, that social connection. So how did that change in, in the US Dominican context? You saw the acceleration of um, people going to the United States and, and, and there was more and more understanding uh, uh, of what the United States might offer an immigrant. Um, some of it obviously highly idealized, right? Because it's never quite, the, the streets are never paved with gold the way some people think they are. But internally, uh, inside um, uh, the Dominican Republic, 
uh, Joaquin Balaguer was still president. I think he was on his third or fourth tour uh, term of office. And, and there was a sense that democracy needed a, a, a push to realize some of the, the reasons that were given for the 1965 intervention, right? To pervert, preserve democratic experience. But you had this, uh, this leader now who had been reelected uh, a number of times. And I, and I think there was a sense at the end of the 1980s as the Cold War ended that uh, the Dominican Republic was finally going to have an opportunity to realize some of the democratic governments that the United States uh, uh, was hoping uh, it could um, uh, it could uh, offer through that intervention, and uh, I think um, you know uh, there's there was obviously I mean it was never lost on me when I would drive by the university or. Uh, certain graffiti, there was still strong feelings about that intervention. Absolutely. Did you ever feel in danger there um, as someone who was working for the, the states? Well, I mean, this was pre 9 11. And mm -hmm. so there was, there was still um, uh, somewhat of an innocence to our diplomacy at that point. Mm -hmm. But we were trained even then to realize that no matter how much you smile and Americans are known for being friendly and smile, mm -hmm. that you as an American diplomat were, were a symbol of the US government and that that did uh, incur and infer um, certain risks that you had to be uh, cognizant of. But the truth of the matter is, um, uh, I think, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. You say you ended up here, but I, I, I felt that that period of time with the, the accelerating immigration and the, the moving back and forth uh, uh, between Dominican communities in the US and, and on the island, that there was a bit of a um, uh, um, a kind of second uh, a honeymoon kind of mm -hmm. where people were 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 really uh, really friendly and um, I don't think I ever personally experienced any uh, direct negativism uh, and that's what made my time in the Dominican Republic so so memorable. Yes. Now, um, you mentioned, you know, your passion for human rights as one of the first things that got you into, um, you know, the studies the, the, of politics and, and diplomacy. As you look back now, um, has that passion shifted? Um, is your approach different now? than it was, let's say, in the, in the 80s? Since I spent most- of, In terms of focus, right? The focus of your right. work as, a, yeah. Uh, yeah. as an international 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because when I joined the State Department, it was during the civil wars in uh, Central America. You know, the assassination of Archbishop Romero in, uh, in El Salvador by right-wing death squads, the killing of American nuns, these, and the, the horrific uh, massacres that were taking place uh, um, in, in, the, in the region led me to want to join the State Department uh, to fight for human rights, uh, universal human rights, and to want to go to Central America, to be there. Uh, and I was the human rights officer in El Salvador. I feel like the work I did there was very important. Um, I know that um, people who had my business card when they were arrested by various notorious police units would get the opportunity to maybe reach out to the U.S. Embassy. And I firmly believe that some of those people's lives were changed and saved because people were still being disappeared. People were still being picked up and killed in Central America. And you know, going into marginalized communities, into uh, uh, and meeting with, um, you know, social service activist organizations, meeting with the um, the Catholic Church human rights advocate, uh, Tutela Legal. Um, I, I felt, you know, that was really meaningful, uh, hands-on, direct work. As I've progressed in my career, I think the difference is um, I'm not um, able to be like on the front lines of that uh, that friction. But I do think it still informs uh, every policy decision I make, uh, and my commitment to universal human rights shapes my approach. Uh, to foreign policy. It is a fundamental tenet of how I, uh, I look at a problem and how uh, I, I address a problem. And as, you know, recently, you know, on one of my uh, trips to Belize, uh, you know, meeting with an LGBTQ activist who had been, you know, beaten up, who was, uh, uh, had a, a significant case before the Supreme Court of the country in Belize, meeting with him uh, and in a public way, in a public place. When I was a deputy assistant secretary, you know, a, a relatively high level US official sent a message that, you know, the United States was watching that this uh, uh, issue, this person's uh, mistreatment and this legal case was something we were watching. And I, I think that's a way uh, that I still try to, to, to make a, a difference. But there is a little bit of nostalgia from not being able to, at this point in your career, you're not doing the grassroots kind of um, activism that you were doing through the, the 
the diplomatic means that you had. So there is a little bit of nostalgia there. And I hear you say that it also informs then the decisions you make now and, and perhaps the risks that you might be willing to take now in your current position. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, mm. you know, it's, um, you know, like I said, even now, uh, while I can't do the day-to-day -day outreach, I mm -hmm. do think when I have the opportunity to incorporate uh, that kind of outreach on an official visit, uh, I certainly, I certainly try to do it because it it does uh, focus the limelight on a situation, but it also informs my understanding of what someone or uh, what a community is dealing with and and uh, and how we might uh, be able to engage more constructively. Yeah, and you mentioned, so the LGBTQ plus community, um, you mentioned that what are the others, you know, for uh, traditionally the issues um, that the human rights commissions across the globe have been, most focused at being the uh, women's rights. Um, so um, indigenous people's rights. When you think about when you look back, uh, you know, this trajectory of your career, what are the areas or is there a most memorable achievement um, that you, that you want to bring up here in terms of um, you had been, uh, that you were part of, of, of an initiative that, that represented a breakthrough. Yeah, I think the effort over the last um, 15 years um, to have United, the United States engage uh, more consistently on the issue of indigenous uh, and Afro-Latino uh, uh, rights in the Western Hemisphere has, has been something I've been able to contribute to. Uh, there was a program that was established uh, as I was coming back from Iraq in the, uh, in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere that I feel like I worked uh, over a decade to, to help uh, preserve and advance. Um, and I think the other issue that has just exploded in the Western Hemisphere is this problem of gender-based violence. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talk about women's rights and women have made important progress in uh, this hemisphere, this Western hemisphere, and in Latin American uh, countries. Uh, but it is coming at an enormous cost in terms of uh, violence against women, both domestically in the home and outside in the wider public uh, sphere. And, um, and there, again, we have, you know, I feel, I feel like we have worked hard 
to raise consciousness about these issues and to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, try to programmatically uh, make uh, contributions. But even while I was teaching at Yale University, uh, I was teaching uh, a class of students that engaged with the uh, Organization of American States to look at the disparate treatment of women in the criminal justice system, specifically related to alternatives to incarceration for low level uh, uh, drug crimes. And, uh, you know, uh, the students were able to identify significant disparate treatment uh, against women and to outline why enhancing access for women to alternative uh, to incarceration uh, options kept families in a hope and allowed women to continue uh, to be that nurturing, important figure in the uh, raising of the next generation of children that are out there. You know, we didn't solve the problem, but again, it's uh, it's 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 it was really it was really um, I'm really proud that we were able to make a contribution in that area. And like you said, you know, the gender-based um, discrimination and 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 struggles and you know, the need for, for the continuation of creating new policies to protect women is, you know, remains one of the main issues everywhere. But I'm thinking specifically in the indigenous communities throughout South and Central America. Um, can you say, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking, uh, I paid a lot of attention to these dance, uh, philosophical dance, we can call it, between the indigenous way of seeing the world and the Western world uh, way of, of seeing, perceiving, acting um, that is so, is, it, is is diametrically opposed the western view and the indigenous right and we have been in these dance since the beginning of of our time but one that seems to continue even with all the progress in let's say feminism in in latin america we have two feminisms we have the Western one, and we have the indigenous feminism, which is, you know, my bias, but I think the future is there. Um, not that you're asking me to, to choose one. My question is, um, as you navigate uh, these worlds, can you think of how you, of a situation where, the Western values put you in a in a in a challenging uh, situation with language or with negotiations uh, because you were you know dealing with the indigenous um, way of of thinking and um, 
and you were approaching it from the Western world. Can you think of a situation like that? Well, I, I think without a doubt, uh, consciousness uh, about indigenous rights and uh, respect for indigenous uh, cultural uh, customs is uh, grown immensely in the last 20 years. It, 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 it certainly has a long way to go. And, um, and I think ultimately the question of um, how women are treated in a ind indigenous context has to be negotiated and um, uh, approached by indigenous communities themselves. It is not something, I, I guess what I would say, we have learned that it is not something that you can impose on uh, communities externally. Uh, and so um, just as we learn to promote democracy in this hemisphere uh, uh, by empowering people's participation in their governance, and it's not without challenges. I think the United States and Western countries can still establish that there are universal standards of uh, human rights that need to be observed and uh, protected, not just by governments towards indigenous communities, but by indigenous leaders uh, uh, within their own communities. And there's certainly, uh, there is certainly some friction sometimes and yeah. in, in, in how that is done. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think we, we, we realize that it is a conversation uh, and not an imposition. Uh, it is an education of two sides understanding each other's uh, cultural context uh, better uh, and, and uh, avoiding uh, always uh, this value laden, our way is the right way uh, of doing it. Um, I think that's something uh, any practitioner of engagement with indigenous communities will tell you, you have to be acutely attuned to that uh, you are not once again uh, injecting a level of per, per paternalistic uh, imposition on a society uh, and a community that has its own rich traditions. Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that you don't uh, help educate about, you know, universal uh, kind of rights. Right. So are you saying that I can rest at ease that the state um, department is aware of um, the need to respect sovereignty and um, that, that the language has changed? You know, I, I think sovereignty is a concept that has uh, existed in the history of international relations for centuries now. And I think um, clearly uh, as we look 
to U.S. diplomacy in the Western Hemisphere, we are uh, acutely, again, acutely aware that countries have, you know, their own uh, sovereignty, and that the best way to engage in this hemisphere is is one of partnership. I like to quote Vice President or then Vice President uh, Biden, who spent a lot of time in the Western Hemisphere, and uh, he said, "I'm not here." anymore to tell you what the United States can do for you. I'm here to talk with you about what we can do together, what we can do with you. And I do think in the Western Hemisphere, our U.S. diplomacy uh, increasingly acknowledges uh, that it has to be a partnership. It has to be with and not two or four to use little words with big meanings. <laughs> yes, well, definitely I, you know, I can say that meeting people like you um, has restored my faith and has eased my, um, you know, my, the, the warrior in me that was forever, you know, very aware of imperialism and um, colonialism and all the isms that I, I have, you know, seriously uh, fought against uh, in the way I live my life and even through my writing. But um, meeting people like you um, has definitely restored uh, a sense of faith. And, and I am so grateful that you agreed to this interview today. Is there one last, um, is there something I didn't ask that you want our audience to know about your work and your trajectory? Yeah, I think, I think the, the key thing to, to remember is um, in all communication, uh, you really deepen understanding and you deepen your own understanding when you are listening and when you are hearing the language and the words that uh, people use and you can think about the context of uh, where they are speaking from. Um, and uh, our most effective diplomats uh, and the most effective diplomats anywhere are ones who show up not with a predetermined solution, but with an open mind and a willingness to listen uh, and find the possible. Uh, and so uh, that's why language is, is so important. Absolutely. And you know, what you're describing, at least in my world, is known as deep listening. And that comes from indigenous wisdom. So Yes, that's why the faith is there <laughs> in the going back to the roots and going back to the, the mindset um, that for, um, you know, the perennial wisdom uh, that, that lies in indigenous thinking. So thank you so much and um, it's such an honor to have you here. Yeah, yeah no, it's... Uh... It's been a great, great conversation. Thank you, Marianella. Good luck with uh, yes. all your all your work.
and thank the you. Thank you for listening to What a Word is Worth. You can access today's interview at Anchor, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you are interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you find our program beneficial, leave us a review. I am with you in love and compassion always, always, always.